Less and Better, Episode 4. What is land for? I'm Katie Revel. I'm Olivia Oldham. We don't think it's possible to discuss the environmental implications of the production and consumption of meat or its alternatives without also trying to understand the social, economic and political context they're produced in. We've heard a few different visions of our meat future, from paying farmers to sequester carbon through grazing, to using cattle strategically to conserve or enhance biodiversity, from the potential for legumes to enrich soil health, to some possibilities for collaboration between farming and lab-grown meat. What all of these visions have in common is that they raise questions about land. Why do we currently use it the way we do? And how should we use it in the future? To explore these questions, we're going to start in Northern Scotland, but bear in mind that this is just an example. The story we're going to hear is echoed all over the UK and in lots of other places too. We're also going back in time, 200 years back. Before capitalism in the highlands and islands of Scotland, the social system was clanship. Elise Bach is a grower and an academic. Her research focuses on the politics of shifting to more ecological food systems. People looked at the amount of land they had and organised themselves based on being able to provide a diverse and adequate diet for everyone. And so at that time, that meant that there was quite a lot of land under arable production People also foraged and hunted, and then there was livestock grazing. But the arable was the priority, and livestock was was definitely there, but it kind of was to serve the needs of the arable. It was organised in order to make sure that everyone had enough to eat. And with the privatisation of land, where land became this private commodity, the focus was no longer making sure that everyone had enough to eat, but it was about maximising the commercial return on land. And in the context of high prices for wool in the industrialising lowlands and south, sheep farming became really widespread and people were forcibly removed from the land. Most people in Scotland will be really familiar with the clearances. People were, were violently removed from the land and relocated onto what later became known as crofts. And the plot size was actually intentionally designed to be so small so that people couldn't subsist off of their own land. They had to sell their labour into well, the industries that were owned by the landlords. This violent, dramatic social transformation hugely reduced the diversity of Scotland's agro-ecosystems, making them much less resilient and more vulnerable to diseases. Diseases like the potato blight that caused the famines of the late 1800s. It kind of further exacerbated this narrative that the highlands weren't capable ecologically of supporting a population through agriculture. Meanwhile, in the rest of the highlands, you know, sheep farming, the intensity increased and increased. Sheep are are selective grazers. And so they really change the ecosystem if they're not balanced out by, you know, cows, for example. Sheep are so ubiquitous as a cultural symbol. They're so associated with Highland Scotland. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting just to to realise that that's a relatively recent phenomenon and that there's nothing sort of inevitable or quote unquote natural or even particularly traditional about it. 
yeah, over time, you know, the highlands did become degraded and we saw this loss of this mosaic of landscape, whereas before there was this combination of woodland and heathland and species-rich grassland and arable land that, you know, had really good soil fertility. All of that kind of got converted to just grassland, often really species poor and some bracken and mosses. Again, further reinforcing this narrative that, you know, agriculture isn't very viable in the highlands. Again, this story is specific to the highlands and islands of Scotland, but a similar process played out in other parts of the UK and around the world, as the spread of capitalism caused huge changes to the way that societies and their food systems were organised. The point is, the way we think about land and what it's suitable for, what it's good for, that can't be separated from the broader way our societies are structured. Our ideas about what can and can't be produced on a bit of land is informed by economic, political and social choices. It's shaped by cultural assumptions and historical forces in ways that can be hard to unpick. At least partly thanks to the histories Elise has described, upland areas in the UK are now defined by the government, officially defined, as being, quote, beyond cultivation. That's cultivation in the sense of growing crops, like wheat or oats or barley or vegetables. Officially, these areas are now only good for rough grazing, and that tends to be what they're used for, grazing animals, especially sheep. Which is just bonkers because people have previously been cultivating it and people are cultivating it. Even when these lands aren't used for grazing, cultivation, growing crops, is very rarely seen as an option. Instead, these areas might be used as grouse moors or other kinds of hunting estates. More recently, these kinds of quote-unquote marginal lands have become attractive for a new use, rewilding. This brings us on to a really key debate, one that often comes up in conversations about animal farming in the UK. The debate between land sparing and land sharing. At its most basic, land sparing is the idea that we should intensify agriculture as much as possible, allowing us to free up and spare much more land for nature or for wilderness. Support for land sparing often comes from the idea that we need to minimise the greenhouse gas emissions that come from farming by maximising our production efficiency. In other words, producing as much food as possible while minimising our energy use and land footprint. But as we've discussed, whether this makes sense depends on what exactly we mean by efficiency. Land sparing also finds strong support among advocates of rewilding. Rewilding usually means allowing an area of land that's previously been farmed or cultivated to return to its natural state. According to Rewilding Europe, it's about stepping back and letting nature manage itself. I think there's this perception that in the UK we have lots of livestock because the only thing that we can grow is grass. Molly Vasanthakumar is a farmer's daughter, a former vet, and now a land management advisor. And that's something that I feel very passionate about is kind of changing that perception and, and thinking about not just restoring land back to how it used to be, but kind of creating a new image for how we need our landscape to look for humans, but also for nature and 
not just seeing the value of nature in terms of what it gives to us, but in terms of its intrinsic value and kind of shifting our whole perception of what we think the British countryside should look like. Not one that says, you know, you can carry on farming as you are, but as long as you have some trees planted here and some hedgerows there and, you know, you leave a little bit of ground for nature, that's not good enough. It's got to be the entire system of farming needs to change. The way I would love our food system to look would be to have the United Kingdom as an area where we're growing large amounts of plants on relatively small areas, really utilising the ground that is suitable for growing crops, that we wouldn't have livestock and that we'd be leaving our kind of upland and marginal areas for biodiversity. Not all supporters of land sparing want to see farmed animals removed from the landscape, but many do. Often, that vision relies on a growth in the kinds of alternative proteins, like cultivated meat, that we heard about in the last episode. I think the best future that I can imagine would be for countries where, you know, you can exist without animal products, then they should no longer be part of our diet. I see the future of of the, you know, kind of precision fermentation and, and the cloned meat as being really important in that, you know, I would love to be able to just see it like a bunch of people walk into a kebab shop, buy their kebab, but there not actually be any meat in it. Molly's vision might seem quite radical, and in some ways it is. But in other ways, the principles underlying her vision, like respecting the value of non-human life and learning from natural systems, these principles are shared by many of the animal farmers and other people that we've spoken to for this series. We don't want to overstate things. These approaches are really different, of course they are. But we do think there might be some common ground to be found. Land sparing is only one approach to changing our food and farming systems in ways that respect those principles of valuing non-human life and natural systems. Many of the farmers we've spoken to have a very different idea of what this should look like in practice, an idea grounded in a very different understanding of the relationship between humans and the rest of the natural world. For a start, if our goal is to protect wildlife, then it's important to recognise that there are some important habitats that just wouldn't exist without some sort of human intervention or management. For example, the lowland heath landscape in Sussex that the Cow Club manages only exists because of large animals grazing it over hundreds, if not thousands of years, and that grazing has been managed by humans. Edwin Brooks is one of the Cow Club's directors. Heathland is itself something that has always been associated with human activity and part of that has been grazing all sorts of different animals on there. If we're going to conserve these environments, we have to do it with the interaction of humans and of people who live nearby to those areas. Having these amazing big animals nearby to where you live or, or where you're visiting, I think does bring people closer to the reasons why you're doing that conservation. It's a good point of entry to being like, wow, why are these cows here? And they're amazing. And what are they doing here? And so on. These kinds of ideas are more aligned with land sharing. Land sharing is a more integrated approach that aims for the whole landscape to provide benefits for biodiversity and the climate and sees humans as an integral part of nature. In terms of what that actually means on the ground, Grazier Nikki Yoxel thinks this can and should happen through farming animals. 
I think the ideas around like land sparing or land sharing just create these false binaries that don't really exist in the natural world. You can produce food and you can manage landscapes and integrate with landscapes in a way that enhances ecosystem functioning, biodiversity, wildlife presence, species richness in fields, like in the same places. You know, the idea that 10% of farm should be for nature. No, 100% of farm should be positive for nature. I use the word nature quite a lot when I talk to other people, but within our own kind of family context, we don't really talk about nature because it just is home. We just need to maybe get out of this idea that nature kind of happens over there and we're over here and we either don't go over there to protect it or we watch it from afar as passive observers or we can do whatever we like over here somewhere because over there is protected. And, and that, to me, is just a continuation of a really extractive, dangerous systems that we've got ourselves into globally. Many conservation biologists support this view based on evidence that the land sparing model doesn't really produce ideal outcomes either for biodiversity or for food production. If we have highly protected areas surrounded by regions of intensive production, regions that would most likely rely on the use of pesticides, monocultures, or other harmful practices to achieve the necessary levels of intensity, that kind of landscape is actually likely to be pretty harmful to the very species it sets out to protect. I mean, I guess to bring it back to like the issues with the kind of more simplistic model of land sparing like I definitely think that there are problems there right like when we talk about land sparing in the UK you know maybe in a very literal sense it's an island <laughs> but in terms of its food supply it's not you know the UK imports between a third to a half of its food already um, so what would reducing the amount of land used for food production even further mean for wildlife elsewhere where that food is still going to have to be produced by somebody? Between 1961 and 2005, five times more land was brought into production uh, most of that land being in the majority world, than was spared for nature or brought out of production, most of that land being in the minority world. During the so-called Green Revolution, there was a three times improvement in the average yield of land, but that did not save land elsewhere. <laughs> it didn't produce land sparing. It actually resulted in a significant amount of further land being brought into production. And I think this is super interesting because Norman Borlaug, who is considered to be the father of the Green Revolution, like his whole idea <laughs> was that intensifying land use would result in land sparing. And it didn't happen then. And I don't think that it makes any sense to repeat that same logic today. Land sparing could happen, 
but it's not just going to automatically happen because of intensification. It's it's a result of policy decisions. And I think one of those policy decisions that should be very carefully considered is the decision to effectively export the biodiversity loss, the degradation, the deforestation, and the climate impacts or emissions that we don't want to make here at home <laughs> to somewhere else and to different ecosystems and different people who maybe are not valued in the same way. How are these choices and assumptions about how change happens, about what's more or less valuable, about which land is good for what purposes? How are these embedded in these land-sparing visions? What trade-offs do they overlook? And what alternate futures for the land do they make invisible? If wildlife doesn't only exist in wild landscapes, and if in fact, in some circumstances, it needs human management to survive, and if it's not only possible, but maybe necessary to have multifunctional landscapes that enhance biodiversity and produce food. If all of that's true, then what does that say about how realistic it is to draw a clear line between natural and managed landscapes? Farmer Andrew Barber thinks that this kind of distinction obscures more than it reveals. I think there's a real dishonesty at the heart of that distinction. So I think land sharing is a more honest, there are compromises, there are trade-offs at every angle of it, but I think it's a more honest way to view how we should produce our, our food and use our land. We would argue that this place has been rewilded in one sense. We use natural processes in our farming. So I'm a bit suspicious about some aspects of the rewilding philosophy, but in principle, using natural processes, if you take that as the definition, I'm all for it. And we should have much more of it in all our landscapes. I think it's interesting that Andrew is sort of subverting that term rewilding. Mm -hmm. He's kind of muddying the waters there, maybe, um, between the land sparing and the land sharing Yeah, that we've talked about. I don't know. I don't always know what to think about this conversation mm. because it sometimes feels like there's a bit of an unhelpful binary between the two ideas as well. For me, it seems more useful again to think about well okay what is our desired outcome in this context you know yes in either model there's compromises and there's trade-offs but shouldn't we be facing those head-on rather than trying to pretend that they're not there mm. isn't that kind of the whole point that like there are no silver bullets Every choice is a hard choice. <laughs> yeah. And and so And an imperfect choice. Exactly. And there will always be these trade-offs. I totally agree. And I think I think in the past I've sometimes myself been rather oversimplistic in objecting kind of out of hand to any sort of proposition of land sparing on the basis that no, actually what we need to be doing is getting more people onto the land. It doesn't have to be either or. It, it can't be the case that every space should be being cultivated. However regeneratively, you know, however agroecologically, there are places like temperate rainforests, some peatlands, spaces that 
are simply not appropriate for for cultivation and for human involvement in that way. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly kind of my hesitation when it comes to all of this is that like a hundred percent like conservation shouldn't be about keeping people out Mm. it should be about bringing people in but in different Mm. ways and I, I just don't know that that always has to look like farming. I think it's possible to both accept that a grazed landscape might be very very beneficial for some wildlife but also to accept that it's probably not great for others. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, none of this is to say that the kind of mm, default or generic Mm. uh, version of land sparing, the kind of passive model, Mm. isn't like deeply problematic for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, It's more just to question, yeah, to question whether these two are really like the land sparing versus land sharing question is really a binary or if it's more of a spectrum um, and what that looks like in different places. Yeah, absolutely. And I think then that raises all sorts of further questions that we probably don't have time to go into here about who has access to the land, who mm-hmm. owns it, who controls it, who mm-hmm. has input and decisions made about it, who has this kind of historic relationship to that land, um, who would like a relationship to that land. There are all sorts of other questions that I think are really, really important. And again, that complicate that apparent binary. Yeah. I think that there really are very serious issues with many of the leading models of land sparing as it's presented. Mm. I guess my point is not to to question that, but more just to uh, suggest that that doesn't mean that the whole idea of having non-farmed landscapes (laughs) is totally irretrievably like worthless. So if there isn't just a simple binary choice between wild and farmed or managed landscapes, what else might be possible? It seems as though maybe we need to reconsider what land might be good for. If traditional upland grazing isn't appropriate for a certain landscape, does that mean all farmed animals need to go? Is the only option to replace them with a vision of conservation or rewilding that separates people and agriculture from nature or wilderness? Or might there be scope to integrate both? When Highlands Rewilding bought the estate, Nikki and James asked if they'd be interested in including cattle as part of their project. And they were really keen and particularly were interested in, because of the type of land that's there, exploring regenerative agriculture as one aspect of a rewilded landscape that helps to enable and support community prosperity. Um, So puts more people on the land and creates food, which is obviously a really important part of of land use in, in Scotland. Perhaps even more significantly, even if we might want to reduce livestock numbers, 
that still doesn't necessarily leave rewilding as the only other option. On one hand, people have the sense that, okay, the only agricultural activity that's viable in the uplands is livestock farming. And on the other hand, this, you know, kind of reaction of livestock farming is really ecologically destructive. We need to be rewilding it or we need to be doing forestry for carbon capture. And I was like, hang on, this is really familiar because <laughs> I've been, you know, growing hundreds of types of foods on a chalky hillside where everyone else thinks, you know, it's only for sheep farming. And previously there were loads of market gardens. So I'm thinking this probably isn't quite accurate. As Elise described at the start of the episode, lots of the areas that are now seen as only good for grazing livestock once hosted multifunctional agroecosystems that grew a wide range of crops, crops that went directly to feeding people. There's one estimate from the Blackland Centre that about 100,000 hectares of the highlands um, is in really good condition for cultivation. And that's a small amount, but it would actually quadruple the land area that Scotland uses for vegetable and fruit production at present. And then on top of that, there's these areas that have been degraded. So they're not really good for livestock production. There's nothing to be conserved or preserved there. And I think those are the areas where there's a lot of scope for people to be rebuilding the soils and rebuilding biodiversity. I definitely see that there's areas that it doesn't make sense to cultivate. And, you know, I think it's fine to have some livestock there. But yeah, I think there's a lot of areas that are currently grazed that, you know, maybe we could think about using and differently in order to feed people. Part of what got me into this research is that I was working in Kenya and people were exporting French beans to the UK and their neighbours were literally starving because of crop failures. And, you know, it's like this whole thing of using land in order to prioritise economic returns, commercial returns of commodities rather than, okay, what do we as humanity need to be producing on our land? And I think this is where we get into the question about meat because almost all of the decisions about what land is used for are based either on existing commodity returns or on previous commodity returns. And in Scotland, we see it in relation to previous commodities because you know sheep farming now is not particularly lucrative. But because it was in the past, we now had this idea that that's the only viable agricultural activity. You know, government policy now, you know, it's about keeping the lights on in the farmhouses and keeping the sheep on the hills to a certain extent, rather than, okay, what what is the ecological potential of this land and how could we be using that for society? What do we want to see on our plates? Meat or beans? A lab-grown steak or home-cooked falafel? What about some combination? Can we even answer this question without digging deeper into what we think our land is good for? Without unearthing the deeply embedded assumptions, the powerful political and economic forces, both historical and contemporary, that shape how land is used? 
without considering how these forces and assumptions shape our imaginations of what land could or should be used for? Maybe a better place to start is to ask what kinds of landscapes we want to live in and to work backwards from there. In the next episode, we'll be asking what less and better meat might mean for health, individual and collective. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode and links to relevant resources on the Farmerama website. If you value what we do at Farmerama, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Less and Better is researched, produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, and me, Olivia Oldham, with the support of executive producer Joe Barrett. Our series music is by Alex Batchelor, and our artwork is by Yagoda Sadowska. Thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Dora Taylor, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Lucy Fisher. Less and Better was made possible thanks to generous funding from the Roddick Foundation and the A-Team Foundation. Thank you.